0: Hello fellow Blue Earthers and welcome to another episode of The Pod. My guest today is British sailor Pip Hare. Pip is preparing for her second around the world race, a test of human strength and endurance. But she says her biggest hurdle has been getting herself a spot on the starting line. We discuss some of the obstacles Pip has faced as a woman in her sport, how against all odds she managed to forge herself a successful career in sailing, plus in a moment of raw honesty, she opens up about why she chose not to have a family. Hi Pip, it's lovely to have you on the pod today. Thank you for inviting me. So tell us about your most recent adventure.
1: I got back from my last race uh, about two weeks ago now. And that was the Vendée Arctique race, which started in Les Abdelons, which is the home of the Vendée Globe. Um, so that is in the Vendée region of France. And the race was supposed to be up to the Arctic Circle. We were supposed to be going up around the top of Iceland, entering into the Arctic Circle and then coming home again. But we had to cut it short because the weather was really, really fierce. But it was a, it was a great race, quite exhausting.
0: So you've been sailing from a really, well, a really quite a young age. So did you live by the sea as a child or was it something that kind of came more towards your late teens, early 20s?
1: No, I didn't live by the sea. I grew up in Cambridgeshire, which is in East Anglia, completely landlocked county. And sailing kind of wasn't something that was particularly available to us where I lived. But my grandfather was a keen sailor. And he actually grew up on the east coast of the UK. So Suffolk and then Essex. And so when I was a very small child, I used to go down to the river and go out on his boat with him. But I think I really fell in love with sailing when I was a teenager, when I was 16 years old. I went on a sailing holiday. um, That was a kind of a youth Sailing holiday, so it was run by young people for young people, and I fell in love with sailing then.
0: What made you fall in love with sailing? Was it the water, your teammates?
1: I mean, it's a combination of everything. I think sailing is an incredibly diverse sport, there are multiple disciplines that kind of take you in lots of different directions. But as a teenager, I think the thing that really appealed to me was. I guess, the the autonomy and the independence that it gave me as a young person. Because I think when you get to the age of 15, 16, you are at the stage where you want to start making decisions. You want to be the master of your own destiny. And actually, you know, society doesn't allow you to. Society is quite restrictive as to, to what you are allowed to do. And yet in sailing, you find a sport where you can... So you could be in a boat on your own, you could be in charge of a crew on another boat, you could be part of a crew, you can be in charge, you can manage risk, you can choose in which direction to go, how fast to go, you know, you're looking after yourself, it's a lot of responsibility. But also, it's a huge amount of freedom. And I think that appealed to me instantly, because I had an agency that I didn't find anywhere else in my life. Once I stuck kind of got to grips with that and started reading about people who sailed long distances and the access it gave you to the world and the adventure it often offered I think it it really spoke to me as a sport that was limitless and I still feel that today I feel that sailing is a limitless sport and it doesn't matter how I change as a person how my physical abilities or my mental ability might change over my life Sailing is a sport that will adapt to me and will challenge me for the rest of my life.
0: Okay, so uh, for somebody who isn't in this world at all and doesn't understand sailing terminology, could you explain the progression that you have to go through within the sport?
1: So I think one of the really interesting things about what I do is that there is no progressive pathway. And even though I'm competing in elite level sport for me to find my way to where I am now was really difficult because there is no established performance pathway. Unlike, for example, if I wanted to race a dinghy in the Olympics, that's quite simple. If you want to race a dinghy in the Olympics, you start off probably when you're a, a kid in a small boat and you go through progressively bigger boats and then you choose whether you're going to be in a crew or whether you're going to do it solo. And there's you know, a very structured performance pathway of of different regattas and championships and classes of boat that you work your way through. Now, for me to end up solo racing a sixty foot flying boat around the world on my own was—I mean, I started out basically. I had to create my own performance pathway. I didn't know that was what I was doing at the time, but looking back on it, that's what I did. And I started out, I left school um, wanting to become a sailor. And I actually became an apprentice at a sailing school because I had no, you know, I had a small amount of sailing experience. I'd been on boats, but I had no qualifications. I had no experience that would allow me to be the skipper of a boat. So I went to a sailing school and I got an apprenticeship. That kind of gave me an opportunity to get a qualification as a commercial skipper. And I achieved that when I was 19 and then started to work as a sailing instructor and a a yacht skipper, kind of doing deliveries and things. And again, that was quite a difficult thing for me to do. I mean, one of the things that I think I particularly want to change about sailing is the gender balance um in sailing as a sport so when i started out as a 19 year old girl so i was probably one of the youngest people in the uk to be a professional skipper at the time and there were less than 3% women taking part in offshore sailing at that time and so you know for me even though i was qualified for me to be able to find jobs and to be kind of given any sort of credibility as a, a yacht skipper was really hard. I just, for a lot of my career, I was banging my head against the wall and being overlooked because I didn't look like a yacht skipper. It's the beard. I don't have a beard. Um, <laughs> and so that was you know, quite a challenge. And I very much wanted to get into the world of offshore and ocean racing. But you know, every time I kind of tried to find an opportunity or an opening or I applied to join a crew... I was getting turned down largely because, you know, I didn't have any experience, but then I couldn't get any experience because no one was giving me an opportunity, chicken and egg, all of those things. So I kind of decided that actually I would just go off and and do my own thing. And I worked all over the world. I skippered different boats. I delivered them. I did an incredible delivery from Grenada down to New Zealand. Um, I kind of had... I tried to get as much experience as possible, sailing with as many different people as possible on as many oceans as possible, believing that that would kind of then allow me to, to find my way back into the racing community and get opportunities in offshore racing. It actually kind of didn't work out like that. And I think in my early 30s, I realised that, that no one was going to open a door for me and say, right, here's an offshore racing opportunity. Off you go, let's see what you can do. So I realized that I had to create my own opportunities. And initially I did that by just kind of, I knew that I wanted to do this single-handed round the world race. So I thought, okay, what's step one? Step one is actually to see if you are capable of sailing single-handed. So at the time I lived on a boat instead of a house, I had a boat. And my first step was actually just to take that boat and sail it single-handed across an ocean. Just no race, just to see if I could. So I did that step one. I enjoyed it. I could do it. Step two was then, okay, take those skills. Let's see if I could do it in a race. So I found a race which I could enter in that boat. And that was the All Star race, which was single handed from Plymouth to Newport, Rhode Island. And I took part in the race and actually did well. And then I kind of thought, okay, step three is to see if I can win a race with this boat. And and so then I found another race, which was double-handed round Britain and Ireland, kind of went at it from a performance point of view, worked out how to to push, how to, you know, what I needed to do to, to try and win, and won that race. Um and then kind of every year I either changed my boat or I changed the level of the race, or I went to France to compete and train, and and every year I kind of said to myself, okay. What's the next step towards my goal? Um, How do I achieve that step? Do I want to achieve that step? And at the end of every year, I kind of had a reflection. Do I think I still have more to give? Do I still want to do this? And if the answer was yes, I kind of took the next jump. And, And like that, it took me 12 years to work through different classes of boats. And in 2019, I kind of made the final jump to the Vendee Globe race. But it's been, you know, a really hard journey. And I've had to be incredibly driven. And I've had to manage everything myself. So I've had to work out what the next step is. How do I execute it? How do I fundraise for it? How do I physically do it? All of that has has kind of had to be a very internal drive.
0: It's so refreshing to hear you um, talk about the honesty required at each stage of the journey because athletes who do these extreme things sometimes lose sight of why they're doing it and can become disillusioned in the process. What kind of energy do you feel like you need to cultivate every morning to just be like, okay, I've said yes to the next stage, we're this many weeks away, we're this many months away, we're this many years away from the end goal, and these are the baby steps. But sometimes when you look at all those baby steps sort of piled up, you think, oh, wow, that's that's quite far away.
1: Actually getting, and, and I, I'll take the Vendee Globe as, as a good example, You know, I started my Vendee Globe campaign at the beginning of 2019 with a knackered old boat, absolutely falling apart, the boat was. um, I had no sponsor, no funding. I'd never sailed in a mock before. And I had less than two years to qualify, to raise the money and become competent enough to do this race. And then the race is three months single-handed around the world on your own. And so you know, the biggest mountain I had to climb was definitely getting to the start of the race. And that was the part that seemed like it could be impossible. And that was the part that drained me. It just, it drains you physically, mentally, emotionally. I likened it to, to, it's not a unique analogy, but it's, it is pushing a boulder up a hill every single day. And and some days you just don't feel like you've made any headway at all for weeks. And some days it just feels so bleak and you'll never make it. But for me, I, I mean, I love solo sailing. I love sailing anyway. I love solo sailing because I genuinely think, It is a platform that allows me to become the best person I could possibly be. When I'm solo sailing, I step up to challenges. I behave in a way that is so positive and so, I guess, so strong. I really can't replicate that behavior on the land because I think on the land we get given so many opportunities not to go head on at a problem and not to find the solution ourselves. And I love the freedom of having to find solutions myself when I'm on the water. And I love to push myself hard. And I'm constantly just curious to know if I could do better, if I could push harder, if I can, you know, make things you know, go in the right direction, compete against that person. And so that feeling, but also that 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 desire to have the opportunity to race against the best people in the world. That was such a strong burning desire inside me that it kept me going every day. But I also really believed that it was possible. And so I think in the times, and, and, and I guess once I'd got to that start line and I was into the race itself, you do have the same sort of feeling in the race because the race is three months. And and you it, it's three months of relentless performance and you you just get rinsed you get to points where it is just freezing cold you know in the southern ocean when you get a storm come through it snows um and it's freezing cold and and you haven't slept You you will have only slept for an hour in the last 24 and things keep breaking and you know you just kind of think when is this going to end when is it going to end but I always believed that I would finish the race. I always believed I would get to the start of the race. And I also, the the kind of, the good feelings, the euphoria of it, the, the incredible adrenaline through sailing a boat like that, that's what keeps me going because I know that that feeling completely outweighs the bad times. And that's what I'm driving towards all the time
0: to that feeling. Can you talk to us about kind of the compounding skill or the embodied knowledge that you've acquired over the decades that you've been doing this that helped you cope in the race?
1: I think the interesting thing about a race like the Bondi Globe is that it is it is a holistic challenge of a human being and there is no other endurance sporting event like it you know physically it is Demanding. My sails weigh about 100 kilos each. By the end of my last race, I'd lost quite a lot of weight. So I weighed, I think I weighed 67 kilos when I got off the boat. And I'm manhandling 100 kilo sails on sleep deprivation. We average about four hours sleep in a 24 hour period for three months. So the endurance fitness that you need, you need good muscle mass, but your muscle mass disappears quite quickly because you cannot help losing. Weight during the race, it just happens. But you need a a good endurance fitness. So I do a lot of cardiovascular fitness and and a huge amount of weight training as well. That ability, like endurance running, that ability to just drop down a gear and grind it out step after step after step, that's a physical ability, but it's also a mental ability. So you need to be able to control your mind and put things in perspective and play a long game. Um, and for me, I think that comes from, I kind of use some techniques. What One is that I know that things don't last forever. I know that bad weather doesn't last forever. I know that feeling low about a situation won't last forever. And And I kind of always think about the cycles of the weather because you get stuck in a storm and it seems awful at the time, but the sun is definitely going to come out again. Definitely, you just have to hang in there long enough, and then the sun will come out and you'll feel differently. And so, I kind of use that to find my way through these problems and these low points. I mean, in terms of the technical preparation and training. That does come from experience and I gained mine from the fact that kind of I have been very underfunded through my whole career. So I've done most of my maintenance and preparation myself. And when things have broken, I haven't just bought new things. I've taken them apart and fixed them. And I'm a very hands-on person. I need to know what the inside of things looks like. <laughs> so I do take things apart a lot, but there's, you know, there's a mechanical, there's increasingly more and more IT to manage um, and electrical things on board. Uh, but also I have a technical team who work with me. My technical director, Joff Brown, he's got 24 years experience now in this class of boat. And so he knows my boat inside out as well. And before we leave, he prepares a package for me which contains all the tools and spares that we think I need to repair every single part of the boat. And I'm allowed to talk to him about my repairs and he's allowed to help me with repairs. Um, So I do have that background support too. But there's always going to be a problem that I encounter that is new. And then you have to break it down and be analytical and and not let it panic you as well. Just kind of just say, okay, this happened. We're going to go into safe mode. And then we're just going to keep plugging away until we find a solution to sort it out. And I think there there is a positive narrative that needs to run through all of that. You have to believe you can do it. You have to believe there's a solution and you have to believe that you're going to finish the race.
0: Do you ever get any downtime to recalibrate or, dare I say it, meditate? But I can't really imagine that you would take 15 minutes out of your day to, you know, do some namaste.
1: So, no, not really. It is full on all the time. But what I do do is make sure I kind of drink it in. It would be very easy to shrink down into your world. And and the you know, your world isn't actually even 60 foot because the boats when they're when they're going on deck is wild. There's tons of water washing over the deck all the time. And so to be kind of a human being standing outside in that, you're putting yourself at risk to be in all that water. So we actually stay in a covered area in the cockpit for for the majority of the time. We don't go on deck that much. And and the kind of space that I would live in is, I guess it's probably like a four metre square space. And it would be really easy just to kind of shrink your whole world into that space. But actually, I really make sure every day that I do just kind of engage with the world around me go out on the deck look at what's going on and I do i kind of got this I call it the zoom out um technique and I you know when I'm struggling or or when I just need a bit of a pick me up I kind of just imagine I kind of almost pull myself out of the boat and imagine looking down at the boat myself in the middle of an ocean thousands of miles from anyone or anything in a high performance race boat on my own you know it is exquisite and it's unbelievable it's just unbelievable and and actually that just really kind of keeps me in the moment and it reminds me that I have worked my whole life to get there and I chose to be there and just kind of celebrate I guess what I've achieved and what other people have helped me achieve as well.
0: You must have experienced some really quite sublime sunrises and sunsets that have the most amazing energy and you think oh wow right now in this moment I am the only one experiencing this. Oh just I
1: mean there are always you know these incredible moments on the water and especially with with the sailing you know I've find the way that the boat interacts with the waves and and the kind of natural light, the way it plays on it. It, It's this incredible interface between human ingenuity and design and the natural world and how the power of the natural world drives the boat. And, you know, all of those things are amazing. But I, I think one of the most beautiful things is actually when you're in the middle of the ocean and there's no light pollution, the stars are so bright if there's no cloud cover you can sail by starlight and that is amazing this kind of monochrome light that is 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 utterly beautiful.
0: I'm a little bit speechless I don't really know what to say to that because I've never experienced it but I can imagine that it would be really moving. (laughs) So you're obviously doing this race that's global which requires to some degree, some quite technical um, apparel. So, is there anything special that you wear that's quite versatile in between, you know, temperatures and types of weather? Yeah, my wardrobe is is quite a challenge. Um,
1: number of reasons. One is that we 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 need to take as little as possible on the race because we don't want to put extra weight on the boat, but also we don't want bulky stuff around all the time. So. Um, I have to kind of have, uh, I don't wash it ever. Um, So I have, I take enough clothing to last me the full length of the race, three months, Um, but that is as little clothing as possible. So on average, I change my clothes about every two weeks, bit minging. And and I, so I wear um, a merino wool base layer um and then a mid various mid layers which will normally be um a kind of um synthetic down type because i can't take real down because so if it gets wet that's it um and then um i wear um a, a breathable waterproof fabric um uh or foul weather gear over the top of that which has rubber neck and and wrist seals so the water can't get in at all um and then in in there because of course we go from you know the southern ocean to the tropics and the equator so in the sun it's um kind of uv protection t-shirts um and uh and a lot of sunscreen
0: are there moments where you just think actually i'm going to take a year's break and pause and do something else or do you think that you will continue to do this for at least another one or two decades? You know, I do
1: reflect quite often. You know, I I check in with myself quite often just to make sure that I am carrying on in the direction I want to. And I'm never going to be afraid or ashamed to say, no, that's it. Either I've reached as much as I can do here or I'm actually not enjoying this anymore. So I think that's quite important. I have in kind of my career, I have had a couple of years out, but they weren't because I didn't want to do it. They were just because I was finding it too hard. I was finding, you know, the fact that I had to do everything on my own and I had to make all of these progressive steps alone. I I was finding that too difficult and too challenging. And so I thought I would do something else for a while and maybe I had got as far as I could, but But actually what happened then was I just, after a couple of years out, I felt like I hadn't given it everything. I felt like I needed to go back and see if I could make it happen. And and I kind of always go into these big challenges. And that's something about me is I always need a big challenge. I need something to focus on and drive towards. I want to achieve more. I'm always going to want to achieve more and who knows what direction that will that will take but there always will be a next step definitely
0: you don't have to answer my uh next question if you feel like it's too personal but because you've obviously been spending so much time doing this i'm going to make the assumption that you do not have a long-term partner or a family was it a conscious decision not to go down that pathway because you felt that the pull to the ocean was too great and that actually it was more of your calling in life than having a family.
1: So I don't mind answering
0: that question. And actually, yeah, I
1: think it's a question that probably people want to ask me a lot, but don't.
0: I guess I'm asking it just because I feel that so many female athletes get written out of their own narrative by default of who they are biologically they are childbearers, and they struggle to ever re-enter the space again you know as somebody who is also highly competitive in sport and has to have many conversations with friends and other coaches I feel like the com- the conversation around it is really fragile and actually many people well many women do get judged when they choose the sport over the fact you know having a family and I guess that's that's why I wanted to ask
1: yeah and and I think I think there is a lot of Judgment out there. So I actually decided quite early on in my life that I didn't want to have a family. And that was before I got into sailing. And I think, and my mum says that she remembers me telling her as a teenager that I didn't want to have children. And the reason I felt that as a teenager was because I looked around. I knew I wanted adventure. I knew I wanted to travel. I knew I wanted to become the best person that I could be, and I looked around in my life and everywhere I saw women sacrificing that. I didn't have a role model in my life. You know, although my my mother has been an incredible role model for me and she she did have a career and she worked while we were growing up but it wasn't the career that she wanted and i know that you know there was a parallel life where she would have achieved more in her career and and i guess i saw that and i very as a young person you know i made the i made this call i want to be me you know i i didn't kind of feel like i'd made that decision and then i had to stick to it you know, I always said through my whole life, if I feel differently about this, you know, I'm, I am the master of my own destiny. If I feel differently about this, then I will change it. But as it happens, you know, I ended up with a, a career in sailing. Um, I've been very happy throughout my career. I've never felt like I missed out by not having children because I am surrounded by amazing children who I love very much in a part of my life. I mean, in terms of having uh, a long term relationship, it's, it's something I would have loved, but just hasn't been on offer to me because you can't, you know, it's a, it's a difficult thing. And I think there are now some incredible role models in the sailing world who are showing there is a different opportunity. So there's a sailor called Sam Davies who competes in the same class as me in the Vendée Globe. Her husband also competes in the Vendée Globe, and they have a little boy. And while he was very little, they took it in turns to race and look after him while the other one was racing. And then more recently, Clarice, um, who I competed against in the last Vendée, she is um, having a baby in October And her partner is also an offshore ocean racing sailor and they're kind of, they're going to do the same thing. And so now we are seeing some female role models emerge who are showing that it is possible to do my sport and to manage having a family as well. And I think that's just so brilliant for any women anywhere to see that, that strength from both parties, you know, within those partnerships. But, you know, my career has been my choice. And, and I don't regret a single decision that I've made.
0: That's, that's, that's a really comprehensive reply. I hope many female athletes who are sat on the fence, or undecided, um, can listen to your words and help make a decision that's right for them. Um, So Pip, on the pod, um, I'm asking uh, everyone kind of what their blue thread is, um, the thing that ties you to uh, the movement. And, Would you like to share yours or can you share yours? Well, I mean, it is, I guess,
1: for me, my place of sanctuary, my solace is the ocean. No matter how I'm feeling, any contact with the water makes me feel better. You know, I think... Um, I'm lucky enough to live by the sea. I, I swim regularly. When I run, it's down by the beach. Obviously, I, I sail. It just is is my sanctuary. I don't think it's possible for me to kind of carry negative emotions uh, for long when I'm on the ocean. And I guess that kind of is the thread that goes through everything I do because... It all refers back to, you know, if I need, if I need my recovery time, it's always by the water or in the water, on the water. My performance is out there. My happy place is out there. It's, you know, every, every place I've pretty much ever traveled or lived, I got there by sailing there. <laughs> I make my friends through sailing communities. You know, it is just the ocean is more a part of me than the land is. And it's definitely where I'm happiest.
0: Do you think that um, the sailing industry is, is sustainable?
1: Um, no, it's not. No, what is? I think we all have some really big changes to make in every aspect of what we do. I understand that I'm as much a part of the problem as everyone else. We love and admire and respect the kind of high performance aspect of what we do, but the boats that we build are made from carbon using resin. You know, there there are aspects of it that that are just not sustainable. But on the other hand, the boat I race is going to be doing its third uh, race around the world. The one I raced last time has done five races around the world, and so I think you know, as a community of sailors. I think we are all fairly well engaged with how important it is to change some of the practices in our sport. Um, and we're really good at things like, for example, alternative power generation, because we've been doing it for years. Um, so I generate power on my boat using solar panels, hydro generators. Cruising sailors use wind generators a lot. We are actively making changes and looking at some of the materials that we use in boat building and in sail making and how can we make those more sustainable um, or environmentally friendly. But you know, in general we're at we're we're at the start of a journey and there's a lot of work to do and a lot of decisions to be made. And I think across high performance sport there are a lot of difficult decisions to be made because you know we are all excited and committed to the high performance element of what we do but at some stage there needs to be a balance put in place around the sustainability of that and and that's that's phenomenally hard really hard decisions to make I think.
0: Why is the performance element less sustainable than maybe a grassroots or participation level?
1: It's because in something like uh, Mocha, you know, one of the exciting things about it is that um, we're constantly pushing engineering boundaries as well as human performance boundaries. And actually, you're constantly looking for boats that will go faster. Um, so you're changing the design over time. You know, for example, a boat from uh, the boat I raced in the last One Day Globe was a 2020 design. It was the second oldest boat in the race. And I was able to race it. And I had a good race, you know, relative to the other boats of a similar generation, I had a good race. But I could never win that race in that boat. If you want to win that race, then you need a newer boat, a newer generation boat. And the designs are changing all the time. And so that means obviously building a new boat or adapting an older boat to be more high performance. And so then you kind of, you, you know, you're starting to get into a situation where the equipment, because the boats aren't one design, the equipment is as important to performance as the human being is. And then that's where it becomes less sustainable because if you have to build a new boat to win, then that, that is a problem. We do see, though, you know, one of, so for example, my the boat I'm using now, it is two generations old now, but we are working with the original designer to upgrade it to be equivalent performance to a new design. And I think that aspect of it is really exciting. The fact that we can still reuse old hulls and make them perform. And so there are kind of, you know, there are solutions. It's a
0: challenge. Can you tell everyone um, what your old boat sails got turned into? (laughs) Yes. So actually,
1: I think we were originally hoping so, so, this is one of the this is one of the elements where you know as a class we're looking at how we can um how we can improve the sustainability of what we do, and one of them is kind of working with sale makers who are able to recycle sales and the sales I used in the last bond were recycled we were hoping to make them into water bottles unfortunately that wasn't possible because the um plastic pellets they were turned into weren't food safe so instead um they've been made into um marker pens and so the the outside casing of the marker pen um is made from my old snails.
0: so uh pip you're going to be at blue earth this year why is it that you think that events like blue earth are really important yeah i'm
1: really looking forward to uh joining the summit I guess these events are important because we are just we we're, we're sharing our experiences and we're encouraging people to to talk about why you know the ocean is important what what's important to us to look after the planet and and how we can collectively start finding solutions and I will always say that I know I'm as much a part of the problem as everybody else is But, you know, if I can do one thing, if I can kind of bring my experiences as a sailor and what I've seen of the ocean to a wider audience and help them engage in wanting to find a solution, then maybe that's a a small way in which I can help. Other than that, I need to be listening to other people to find solutions and, and trying to
0: find, you know, solutions that
1: work for me as well as the team. A
0: huge thanks to Pip Hare for joining me on the pod. You'll be able to catch Pip at the Blue Earth Summit this October. Don't forget, you can now start planning your trip. Head to blueearthsummit.com to have a look at the programme of events and follow us on Twitter. Just search Blue Earth Summit. Blue Earth Summit is happening from the 11th to the 13th of October 2022 in the great city of Bristol. We believe in the power of the outdoors to improve our health and further establish purpose-led business. Register your interest at blueearthsummit.com.